Rick Steves is a professional tourist. With near effortless efficiency, Rick crisscrosses Europe honing his skills as a tourist to perfection. And then he returns back here to America and he teaches Americans how to do it. If you've ever watched his program on PBS, you know that this man knows how to travel. Among his many secrets, Rick insists that you must travel lightly. Americans are predisposed, he has learned, to weigh themselves down with all sorts of stuff. And then they have to lug that weight around to every place that they visit in Europe. Travel light, he insists, you will be happy that you did. Rick has a long list of helpful tips for how to pack light. And one unique idea in his observ is his observation that many pack out of fear. They pack their bags for every eventuality, every potential problem. Now listen, says Rick. You can always pick up that bottle of calamine lotion, calamine lotion if you in fact get poison ivy in Europe somewhere, going through somebody's hedge. But don't lug it around with you just in case you get poison ivy. Pack lightly. How foolish it is, he warns, to travel to Europe and to be limited by the weight of your bags. Light travel is the key to a happy tour. That's not bad advice. And that's not bad advice for the Christian life either. The great North African theologian Tertullian made this connection way back in the third century. He said this, when a man walks along a road, the lighter he travels, travels the happier he is. Equally on this journey of life, a man is more blessed if he does not pant beneath a burden of riches. I believe that expresses the will of Jesus Christ for his followers. Jesus wants his followers to pack lightly. He does not want worry to pack our bags so that we, as Tertullian put it, pant under the burden of riches on this journey to heaven. Rather, Jesus wants his followers to orient our focus not on the physical necessities of the journey, but upon the final destination of our travels. That's very wise counsel. And Christ, in his grace and his mercy to us, lays out that teaching for us to think clearly and to orient our lives in a way that is wise and skillful. Light packing, wise traveling. Jesus starts in this instruction at verse 22 of Luke chapter 12. Negatively, he says, do not worry about physical necessities. Do not worry about physical necessities. Verse 22, Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Verse 22 starts at the beginning there with the word, therefore, as Jesus, his first words, therefore, I tell you, this ties back to this rich man 
the parable that Jesus has just told in verses 16 through 20, this rich man has put full attention upon his wealth, and he ends up an eternal loser. We should orient our lives, verse 21, rather to being rich in our relationship to God. What does that look like? What does it look like to pursue wealth with God and not to become oriented to the things of this world? Well, it means, first of all, you do not worry. Worry is set aside. Now, we have to be cautious here with Jesus' words. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. The word worry needs to be understood in a particular way. Jesus is not commending here carelessness. There is a right sense of worry about these things and a wrong sense. He's obviously driving at the wrong sense. He's not speaking of being careless or apathetic or lazy or undisciplined with money or work. You have to work your tail off in this world to make it. Jesus knows that. But if you are seeking God with all of your heart, if you are striving for what will never fail with, for eternal reward, that's where your face is set, that's where your heart is focused and oriented, then you never need to worry about physical necessities. Work diligently? Yes, the Bible commends it throughout. Worry anxiously? Never. The rationale is given in verse 23. Life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Danker puts it this way, living is more than having. Living is more than having. Don't worry about food and clothes because life is much bigger than such small matters. If you are worrying about physical necessities, maybe it is food or clothing, Or in our setting, maybe it's more rent and mortgage and bills and insurance. If you're worrying about those things, you are looking at life as smaller than it is. It is small of you to worry about such things, says Jesus. Creation itself teaches us this. Just look around. Verse 24, consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. God so preserves. What do we see here? We see the doctrine of providence again, do we not? He so preserves and he so governs his now fallen creation that to see a raven or a crow picking the meat off a carcass is to watch God feed the birds. Now, we certainly don't envy their diet at that moment, but we, we can know that we as His creatures also are fed by the same hand. Again, we need to qualify, don't we? Have you ever seen a bird sitting on a tree with its beak up to the sky, holding it open, waiting for God to drop a worm in? You ever see a crow sitting on the telephone pole, waiting for some squirrel to drop over dead at its feet. Of course not. Birds work their tail off, as we say, to keep fed, always looking for food, always worrying. But have you ever seen worry painted on the face of a bird as it's looking for its lunch? Maybe if it's about to become lunch, it might be worried, but it's not worried about what it's going to eat. God feeds the birds. Just look at creation. They're not stacked up waiting for him to drop things in their mouth, and at the same time, they're not 
running around worried that it won't be there. They're just working, and they're working with peace in their heart. Listen, says Jesus. If the creator of the universe so cares for unclean birds, do you suppose he's going to forget about caring for you? You who are made in his image. I know it's trite, but I think it's a fitting little poem. It says a lot. Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the, to the robin, friend, I think it must be. They have no heavenly father, such as cares for you and for me. Work diligently, yes. Worry anxiously, never. Jesus exposes the utter futility of worry. He calls us not to worry, then exposes its futility there in verse 25. Notice it. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? You see the marginal note, the phrase, the Greek phrase can be taken two different ways, a figure of speech. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Worry is futile. It never actually accomplishes anything of value, ever. Now again, there's a right kind of worry. There's the worry or the drive that leads us to work. But this anxiety, this fear, this worry that is debilitating, Jesus has no time for it and we should set it on the shelf and never bring it down again. Worry is futile. It accomplishes nothing. Verse 27, Jesus goes back to creation. He illustrates again, consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. We can just see Jesus there with moving his hand across the fields. In Palestine, there's a rare summer rain, as a rare summer rain will come. There will be these small wildflowers that bloom in that one day, and they paint the hillsides with a splendor of color. As Jesus sweeps his hand, perhaps, across the plain and says, look at how beautiful those flowers are. Not the wealthiest Israeli king of all time could ever hope to look so beautiful as those flowers. If, verse 28, that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? This dry grass would be gathered up and put into clay fire, uh, into clay furnaces that would bake their bread. Wood is limited in Palestine, of course, more now than then, but even then. And so they would gather this dry grass and burn it in the ovens to bake their bread. In other words, this grass is very meaningless. 
It's not around very long. It dries up. It's just used for fire. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, how do you think he'll take care of you made in his image? Oh, you little faiths, he calls them. You people of little faith. Jesus turns up the heat a little there, doesn't he? When he makes that statement. Oh, you of little faith. You who worry about not having enough. Can you not trust God to provide? High anxiety about the satisfaction of material needs betrays a low view of God's power and love. Here's the point Jesus summarizes. Verse 29, do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. That takes us back to verse 22, where he says, do not worry about your life. He brings out this section to close with verse 29, where he says, do not worry about it. Jesus is insisting we must not worry. For, verse 30, here's the reason the pagan world runs after all such things. Unbelievers have no basis for confidence in the loving care of a heavenly father. The pagan gods were whimsical. You could trust them to make your life miserable, but you could not trust them necessarily to provide. You would offer sacrifices to seek to appease them, to try to make them happy, to figure out how it could be that they might protect you this day, but you never really knew what they were going to do. Is that your God, says Jesus? Is this the kind of God that we relate to? No, that's how the pagans act. They have no confidence that their gods will supply. But that's not the relationship that you have with your heavenly Father. The pagan world runs after all these things. Notice the second part of verse 30. And your Father knows that you need them. Your Father knows that you need these things. Food, and clothing, and shelter, and the like. He knows this. Worry over physical necessities is an affront to your heavenly Father. To worry is to say the Creator can take care of the birds, He can take care of the grass, but I'm not really sure He's going to remember to take care of me. I might be forgotten. Worry is to say, I'm not sure my father is going to see my lack. That's a pagan God. That's not the most high God of heaven and earth. He sees, he knows, he will provide. Worry can be killed. Now there's an awful lot that's not said here. I've tried to qualify a bit that we do need to be working we need to be diligent and give effort. And that's not what Jesus is saying, that we sit on our hands. But there's much else that is not said here. In fact, there may be spots we put ourselves in where we are so concerned about our financial situation because of errors that we have made. These are issues are not addressed here. In fact, if we are in a place where we must depend upon the Lord, all of us are at that place all the time, we know that God is teaching us something about Himself and teaching us often something about us. But all of these qualifiers aside, we should not worry about physical necessities. Pack light and trust God to keep you supplied. 
of a positive side is given then at verse 31. Do not worry about physical necessities. What does it say? Secondly, orient your life toward the kingdom of God. This is the right focus. This is the right orientation. Verse 31. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. But seek his kingdom. Notice the but there. This is the contrast to the spirit of worry that Jesus has been condemning. It makes no sense. You have a heavenly Father who cares for you. Look at the creation. There's no reason to worry about physical necessities. Work, yes. Worry, no. But that's what you're not to do. Here's what you are to do. Seek the kingdom of God. For those that Jesus is speaking to, what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Messiah who stands before them. The kingdom is in their midst. Speaking with them is the king. Seek the kingdom of God. Seek the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. For us, of course, the kingdom of God is more nuanced. The light of that kingdom has dawned with the resurrection of Christ, but the kingdom is ultimately a future hope when Christ will rule the nations in righteousness. So to seek God's kingdom is to adopt a future orientation toward the day that Christ will rule and to live today as a worthy citizen of that kingdom. To live as Jesus would have us to live. That is to seek the kingdom of God. And he says there by way of promise at the end of verse 31 that then these things will be given to you as well. So as you journey toward the kingdom of God, don't worry, but be assured that God will keep your backpack supplied. Keep focused on the goal. Seek the kingdom of God. He'll take care of the physical necessities. Verse 32, do not be afraid, little flock, for your heavenly Father, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. What has he just said? Seek the kingdom. Now don't fear little flock, your Father will give you the kingdom. The great shepherd will bring his flock into the fold. He who has been pleased to give you the kingdom will certainly make sure that you receive it. So don't worry about that. Just keep walking. We have here, do you notice it there? In verses 31 and 32, we have here uh, two ideas that are to be seen as compatible. I think this is very helpful theologically to see these kinds of connections. What does God say? What does Jesus say? Seek the kingdom, 31. And then verse 32, he says, The Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom, past tense. So seek the kingdom that he has already been pleased to give you. There are many passages of Scripture that bring these two ideas together. And this makes sense of prayer, I think, for us. We pray for what God has willed. Pray that His will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, of course, His will is done on earth as it is in heaven, but we pray for what He promises. And so we have here the same idea. Seek the kingdom that He has already determined to give you. We go after it. He provides it, working together compatibly. Now, on your journey, make sure to travel lightly, verse 33. What is verse 33 saying? Notice how it fits into the context that we've considered here. Verse 33, sell your possessions and give to the poor. 
Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. Is Jesus saying that every true follower will sell everything that they have? You're a follower of mine? You must sell all that you have and come follow me. Well, Jesus did definitely ask certain individuals to do that in his journeys. And if Jesus were in some way to make clear to you that that's what he wants from you as his disciple, we should all be willing to lay down everything that we have and to follow him. If it's a hunk of possessions over here and it's the Lord Jesus Christ over here, you follow Jesus and you leave your possessions behind. But obviously what Jesus is saying is not to be taken in conflict with the rest of the Bible. And the Bible speaks very decisively about the idea of material possessions. And Jesus nowhere else teaches when he's talking about possessions that every time that he teaches on them, he does not always say you should divest yourself of everything. I think the essence of what Jesus is saying is feel free to give away your wealth to others on this journey. In fact, go ahead and do it. Use your wealth to benefit the needy. Use your wealth for the kingdom of God. Rather than hoard your wealth, divest it in the interest of others. And you know what? You don't have to worry, says Jesus. I have you covered. The money belts of heaven never wear out. The wealth deposited there is never depleted and it's never stolen. It is not susceptible like the wealth that you store in clothes to the ruin of moths. Now hold on here. Do we really have this? Do you see the connection in verse 33? There's an amazing connection there. Sell your possessions. I think the next sentence here in the NIV, verse 33, parallels that first sentence. They follow. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. What is Jesus saying? I've not seen it put more succinctly, more ably than Randy Alcorn in his book, The Treasure Principle, where he says it so simply this way, whatever treasures we store up on earth will be left behind when we leave. Whatever treasures we store up in heaven will be waiting for us when we arrive. I think that is what Jesus is teaching. That's one way that you seek the kingdom of God. You travel light and you invest in eternity. Alcorn takes the quotation by Jim Elliott that we're familiar with. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That applies to money as well as to life. Jim Elliott, writes Alcorn, was a prophet seeker. What separated him from the common Christian wasn't that he didn't want treasure, but that he wanted true and lasting treasure. He wasn't satisfied with treasure that would be lost, only treasure that would last. That's wise. That's the way to travel. Why should we give wealth away so as to invest it in heaven 
Verse 34 is the answer. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There is great wealth in that word of counsel. This will keep your focus on eternity. Invest there. Every physical provision for life's journey is given to us by God. He expects us not to hoard those provisions, but simply to use them to get through to eternity. And when we take of those possessions and invest them in eternity, we put our heart there. Our heart follows our investment. If you were given $100,000 tomorrow and said you can only do one thing with it, this is part of the deal, you've got to invest it in such and such a stock. Well, if you're like me, I'm not, I've, I've seen the stocks, I did it in school, I haven't looked at them for years. I don't really have a clue what's going on in there, but all of a sudden I'd figure out, where's that stock thing in the newspaper? I've got $100,000 in here. All of a sudden, my heart following my money, I'm concerned about the stock market, right? If you invest significantly in eternity, your heart is going to follow your investment. That's where you want to be. There is, among other reasons, I think, as we apply this, one reason that American Christians are so caught up in houses and cars and clothes and restaurants and entertainment and vacations and retirement accounts. One of the reasons is that we do not give significantly to God's work. And I wonder what goes on in your own mind, in your own heart, perhaps as a single person or as a couple in a family, with the older children as well. Do you talk in your family about giving to God's work? Is that an exciting investment con conversation? Do you sit around and dream from time to time about how you can invest in eternity? Is giving your primary investment orientation? I think we can say honestly before Christ in his words today that if the financial thoughts that dominate in your mind or in your home are all about vacations and the new car and remodeling and redecorating the home and buying that starter house or maybe the second cabin, beefing up the investment portfolio, that's all that it's ever about. It's all about what we're doing here with our finances. If that's where your conversation is stuck, it's stuck on that channel, then I think that's proof positive that your investment in eternity is too weak. I really don't care what the percentage is that you've put with it. If this is where your focus is, the next thing, the next place, the next design, the next method of entertainment, that's all that dominates your financial conversation. You aren't invested in eternity like you should be. We should give to the degree that we care about the work of God. Our money should screw our heart down to eternity's values. So often we're screwed down to the here and now because of our financial investments or lack thereof. Princeton sociologist Robert Wuthnow says this, you test it in your heart. 
He says, we are well trained at putting our faith in one mental box and our finances in another. I don't agree with that at all. You don't put your money in a different box than your faith. Your money is always in the same box as your faith. Now I know you can be hypocritical with money. Someone can give 75% of their income and not be investing in eternity. All of that, that, that qualifier established. Your heart and your money go together. You cannot box your faith in one place and your finances in another. But here's the good news. Here is the good news that Jesus, our great counselor, gives us. If you will invest in eternity, it will guide your heart. Your heart will follow your money because your money, of course, is always taken forward by your heart. So divest your backpack of unnecessary weight and invest in heaven. Give freely to God's work and watch how your heart follows your investment. Are you traveling light? Is worry causing you to pant beneath a burden of riches? You know, it's a question that we all must ask ourselves. It's not a question we can be very effective at critiquing others about. This is not something that we can always know, what's in another person's heart, what is another person's plans, where are, is their money going. That's not something that we can know, and I think we walk onto pretty thin ice when we begin to determine where people are at. But we can know our own heart. Is the focus eternity? Are we seeking the kingdom of God? I'd like if I could at this place for us just to stop and to think. I'm going to take you on a little bit of a lengthy journey here, but I want you to just imagine. And I hope by going on this little lengthy journey that it will help the point come more clearly to our minds. Just outside a remote hamlet in a medieval English village, a medieval English hamlet, just outside, a young man, his young teens, he's feeding pigs for his cruel master. Picture him there. He's tossing rotting vegetables into the pen. There's a driving rain that drenches his matted hair and his tattered clothes. His face is streaked and dirty. He shivers in the cold. There's the glow of the hearth in his master's hut, but master's drunk tonight. Better to just stay with the pigs. And so this young orphan nestles down in the muddy straw next to a sow to keep warm, tries to forget the cold in his empty stomach, and tries to remember the face of his parents as he does every night at this time, but he never can. His earliest recollections are only of people along the way that picked him up for a little while, some abusing him, some, some helping him, but everyone in the end turning him over to someone else or abandoning him to, nuts, to, to find his own way. His only memories are of this miserable life bereft of love. As he's thinking and drifting off to sleep, he hears hoofbeats. 
A lone rider stops at the pen and lifts aloft a great, great torch and says with a very rough voice, Are you the orphan boy, Edward, who arrived here last summer? I am, sir, says Edward. The gruff tones of the soldier's voice soften, and he says, Come with me, young man. Edward climbs onto the horse and notices as they are riding off that there's other soldiers before the hut of his master who cowers in the light. Soon all of the soldiers are joined together around him and they're riding quickly into the dark night. They stop at an inn where Edward is provided with a bath and warm clothes and a warm meal by a roaring fire. He is then given a soft bed and a warm room where he sleeps the best sleep of his entire life. As he begins to wake in the morning, he knows it's all been a dream. But then he feels a pillow under his head as his eyes open. He dresses quickly and walks out of the room at the inn, and there are the five soldiers waiting for him. And as he comes out the door, they bow. Edward is flabbergasted. What is this all about? One of the soldiers begins to make sense of it all for him. You are the nephew, he says, of King Edward of Cragenmore. The king has searched for you diligently since your birth. You are the illegitimate son of his sister who died the day after you were born. The king had no son, and he immediately adopted you as his own. You are now his son. But three days later, you were kidnapped. The kidnappers ran into a band of marauders who killed them, leaving you on the side of the road to die. We heard this from various people, that you were picked up and cared for for a short time by a midwife who herself died, and we lost track of where you were from there, and we've been searching for 15 years to find you. We have now found you. And I want you to know that your father loves you. This will not make sense to you, but all you must do to come into his kingdom and to become his heir of, an untold, of untold wealth is to walk the road outside this inn to his home and to your kingdom. A satchel is given to Edward. It carries some basic supplies to get him to the next inn. The soldier assures him not to worry about why, but just to go to the next inn, and his means will be provided along the way. Make haste, my lord, to reach your father's throne untold wealth and glory await you there. Now let's think for a moment as Edward blinks and the soldiers ride off into the sunshine of the morning. Where is Edward's treasure? Is it on that steaming breakfast that's sitting there before him on the table? Is it back in that soft bed in the inn? 
Is it in the satchel of provisions that have been handed to him? Is it in his warm clothes? Never in Edward's life has he ever been so rested and fed and warm and cared for. Never. But where is his treasure? His treasure is on the road ahead. His treasure is in the kingdom of his father. His treasure is in the fact that he has a father. That there is one who claims him as his own. His treasure is ahead. Now is Edward, as he leaves the inn with his stomach full and rested and warm and supplied, as he heads on that road, is he going to enjoy the trip? Oh, you better believe it. He's going to love every step of the way. He's a free man. He has a father. He has a home ahead of him. He has provisions. But I want to ask, is he going to fill that satchel full of all kinds of trinkets and heavy things to weigh him down, to make his journey longer? Not on your life. He trusts the soldiers to get that he will get from inn to inn. And as he comes to the next inn, there is money that is provided there for him, more than he needs to care for himself. How does he spend that money along the trail? Does he hoard it for himself and say, I'm going to need this when I get to my kingdom? Not at all. What does he do? He uses that money along the way to stop to help a needy person to give to a good cause. And he says, as he gives that excess money away, here, this is given in the name of King Edward of Craigenmore. He begins to spread his influence along the way and to serve his kingdom and his king and his father because he knows that when he reaches the kingdom, he will be rich beyond measure. This is just about the journey. It's the kingdom. It's the kingdom that matters. He wants to get there as quickly as he can, being faithful each day to be the young man that he should be. You know, Christian, Jesus Christ preached the gospel of the kingdom to spiritual orphans. He preaches the gospel of the kingdom to those who are wallowing in the squalor of sin's swine pen. In the mud and the cold and the dirt, always seeking to fill our stomachs with somebody else's bread, taking the best portion off that rotting apple before throwing it to the pigs. That's all we've known is a cruel taskmaster. But Jesus preaches the gospel of the kingdom to his spiritual orphans. And by his grace, as we read earlier in John chapter 1 this morning, we receive him and become his adopted children. We are now on a journey by his grace. We have no idea how long it will take us to reach that home, how long it will take to reach his kingdom. But we need have no worry. If he has picked us out of that ugly pen and has set us on the road robed in his righteousness 
and has told us that the kingdom is there and coming and that we will be his children forever, do we need to worry that he's not going to get us there? We need only to journey with our sights set on the kingdom and to act every day as if we were indeed citizens and heirs in that kingdom. Seek first. Seek first the kingdom of God. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's travel light and let's go hard after the kingdom. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, our Lord, for your counsel. And unless we're really sleepy, we acknowledge before you, Lord, the convicting hand of the Spirit of God. I pray that we would not that that we would guard our hearts from a judgmental spirit. But I pray also, Lord, that we would see ourselves for who we are. That we'd remember the wealth that we enjoy in this land. You've put some people on this journey to the kingdom and you've put very little in their satchel. And they've really got to trust. Our satchels are really heavy. They're filled with all kinds of things that we don't need. That's true of every last one of us here. Some more than others, but Lord, we are full and rich. And I just ask that we would respond to what Jesus is saying that we would come together as a church and accomplish great things by investing in eternity. That as individual believers in Christ, we would invest great things in eternity. Lord, how foolish to travel around Europe with a big, huge pack on your back with all the things needed for any eventuality. But Lord, that's, what, that's often what we're doing, I think. We have so many things. May we always remember that the possessions of this world are for the journey, just to get us through. I pray, God, that you'd help us to think clearly about what is true investment and what is nothing more than greed. And I ask that we would find our joy in you and that our treasure would be located in the right place that it would not be on earth, but that our great treasures would be in heaven. And we thank you for the promise of Jesus that moth and rust, and thieves, do not deplete what we deposit in eternity. 
Help us to do so faithfully and fruitfully so that our focus is there. You have been faithful to teach us and to instruct us. I pray, God, that we would be faithful as we walk this journey. I pray, dear God, that there would be a fire in our soul for the gates of heaven, that there'd be a longing in our heart for the day that Jesus Christ reigns here, a day when righteousness and goodness and peace and purity are honored. God, may we act that way now. Help us to treasure heaven and to treasure you and to treasure the kingdom of your Son. We pray this in his name, asking that you will work in our hearts. And I want to bring in prayer before you also any who might not know you as personal Savior and Lord. I ask God that they would receive you and become the children of God. I ask God that you will draw and instruct and teach anyone who needs you as Savior. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.